You're listening to the Daily Sweat Podcast, where we are all about doing something that makes you sweat every single day. What's up, friends? Welcome back to another episode of the Daily Sweat Podcast. I am so excited that you're here today, and I'm excited for today's guest. Today, I am talking to Dylan Jones, who is the founder of Coast Protein. Coast Protein is a local company. However, they have expanded out into the, I believe, international realm, and they have cricket products. So they started out with cricket protein bars, and now they have cricket protein powders. They've expanded the different types of bars that they have, and it's been really cool to see the evolution of Coast Protein over the last couple of years. So I was really, really excited when Dylan mentioned that he was looking to get out onto some more podcasts. And when we first spoke about what we could talk about, what I really loved was his idea of sharing what it's like to run a business that is growing, that is gaining traction and is making some big moves, but is also not that like huge, super corporate, like multi-billion dollar business that has a lot of resources behind it. Like he is still really, really heavily involved in the business. They are still in this really strong growth phase and the results are obviously paying off. But yeah, I just think he brings a really fresh and unique approach to business conversations, especially from what we've talked about here on the Daily Sweat podcast. We also talk a little bit about the food industry as a whole and how larger corporations are starting to recognize a need for more sustainable options, more conscious options. And we also talk a little bit about how Dylan finds ways to take care of himself while running this awesome business that he has. So as I said, Dylan is the founder and CEO of Coast Protein. They were the first company in North America to launch all natural cricket protein bars and powders as complementary product lines. They are delicious bars. If you have ever felt put off by trying a cricket protein product, I would say go for it. They are so delicious. You don't even taste the crickets and they're such a sustainable source of protein, which Dylan is going to tell us all about in the episode. So without further ado, let's dive into our conversation with Dylan. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Daily Sweat podcast today, Dylan. I'm super stoked to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. Awesome. So before we dive into the meat of our conversation, I have a question that I start with every guest who comes on the show. And I would love to know, what are you most excited about in life right now? Oh, man, there's a lot of things. I think for me, the most exciting thing in, in like in the in work, if we're talking just about work, uh, is... I spent it was three days last week in San Francisco at the Future Food Future of Food Tech uh, Summit, and just hearing how many companies are taking uh, not only food security but in, you know and sustainability in food, especially coming in to the protein world, um, how many companies are taking it very seriously, and not just small companies that are you know, trying to be change makers, but we're talking about like, the biggest companies in the world were there. There was the head. Heads of innovation, CEO, CEOs of Tyson Foods, which is the biggest food company in the world, you know, Kellogg's, Danon, Trebani, uh, you know, the CEO of uh, Beyond Meats with the Impossible Burger and Memphis Meats are doing the single cell like, vat grown meat. We're there uh, doing talks, you know, meet and greets. I met a lot of them uh, and how seriously they're taking 
sustainability of food for the future is really cool. Like speaking of for Danone, for instance, $40 billion dairy company that's purchasing up non-dairy um, yogurts and spreads and you know things like that, like crazy because they think it's the future. Um, that, that got me pretty excited. Uh, for non-work life, it's spring in Vancouver, which is always very beautiful, but my, we got a new dog last year and this year he's obviously older. And so we're excited to start hiking with him a little bit now that he's a little older, a little bigger and stronger. Yay. What kind of dog did you get? Oh, he's purebred, but, uh, we got him from, uh, Texas, somewhere in Texas through like Pet Finder. Oh, cool. We have never got the DNA for him. We think he's catalog and terrier or something like that. I don't know. Fine. It's birthday. (laughs) (laughs) We adopted a dog from Taiwan last year. Um, So yeah, it's been really fun taking her out on hikes and going on adventures with her. Nice. I see uh, a lot more dogs uh, in our neighborhood, especially uh, they're being adopted from like Thailand, Taiwan. Uh, Iran's a big one, I guess. Is people, yeah. You know, a lot of dogs from Iran. Um, yeah, we didn't go quite as far, but you know, we're people in the adoption thing when there's lots of dogs out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of dogs who need love. Yeah. Now, that's that's super interesting that you said what you were saying about being at that tech summit, and then how all of those bigger corporations are now kind of stepping into these, you know, like the plant, like the dairy-free cheese spreads and things like that. I, I'm always like both excited and kind of wary mm-hmm. when <laughs> like the big corporations get involved in that. And just kind of as like an off the cuff conversation, I'm curious about um, what it is that excites you. Like, do you, is it from like, there's more funding behind these smaller companies now, now that will help them get into the limelight? Or do you think that there like is a legitimate interest in these bigger corporations to start changing the way we view food? Yeah, it's, you know, that's a very good question. So absolutely, it's exciting from our point of view for investment, for strategic partnership. They're doing a lot more strategic partnership, which is a lot different than the old model of investing where they're like, you know, here's your money, see you, best of luck. If you don't make your your quarterly updates, we'll just pull our funding. Now it's take advantage of the Kellogg's innovation department, you know, take advantage of the Danon um, distribution network. They're really sharing their systems with these strategic partnerships, which is really exciting because those systems they have in place are world-class. Um, you know, but I definitely uh, know when people think about major food companies like Maple Leaf or Tyson or, or Kellogg's, um, you know, they don't think of sustainability. They only think of the worst parts of them. And I, I agree with that. There's a lot of really crappy things like General Mills the other day got caught putting you know, they had a roundup in their breakfast cereals. Uh, and, and you're like, oh, perfect. Great. Well, you know, way to go, guys. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, corporations are made up of people. Uh, and a lot of the people who, who were at this summit, you know, and these were mid-level or low-level people. These, these were heads of global departments, um, extremely intelligent, extremely passionate people who uh, are taking the sustainability aspect and the food security aspect extremely seriously. Like they know, so take Tyson Meats for, for instance, they're one of the biggest investors in the, the Impossible Burger, the, the, the vegan burger that's like taking over uh, the world right now. Uh, they, so that's Tyson Ventures, which is the investment arm of Tyson Foods. 
Tyson Foods is a is a like poultry. I think they started as poultry and then they moved into beef and all conventional meats. But they know they have to feed to stay the biggest food company. They have to feed a billion people in China, uh, about a billion people in India, and then in the next thirty years, they have a billion more people in Sub-Saharan Africa that are all becoming part of the global food system. They're all becoming wealthier as they move into the middle class. Um, and they've already realized it's impossible. It's a zero-sum game to feed those three billion more people uh, the same way we fed North Americans and Europeans um, and you know, wealthier other countries uh, for the last uh, 50 years, 100 years, however you want to say it. Like they know there's no land. You can't, we can't grow three billion people's worth of cows in the planet. There's just nowhere to do it. Mm-hmm. So they're saying, oh, okay, well, if we can't, if it's impossible to do that, what are people going to eat when they want more protein? Um, so they're definitely looking at the long-term you know, viability of the market in terms of investment and, and revenue growth. But they're also thinking that, you know, this, this is just not going to work. And more and more people in North America and Europe are moving towards plant-based at the very least vegetarian in droves and even vegan. Of course, vegan is exploding. It's still very, a very small percentage of the entire food market. But even for ourselves, right, me and my fiance Stephanie, we eat uh, a lot less meat than we used to. When I, when, even when I was growing up, we just ate a lot. We eat a lot less meat. And it's not, uh, it's not a struggle. It's just, oh, yeah, let's just eat less meat because we don't need this much meat. And I think they're, they're preparing themselves for those two big shifts, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, can't feed this many people and more people are moving to plant-based. So let's intersect that with... Uh, let's intersect that with really high quality plant-based foods, uh, you know, and then there, but I don't want to sound like a corporate show for these big guys. He's in no way associated with any of these companies. It was just a breath of fresh air to see them uh, at this type of event uh, and, and putting in real time and effort and money and speaking to all the small startups um, and giving small startups their you know, serious capital, you know, series level of you know, uh, you know, five to ten million US, which is serious capital, yeah. because they believe in those businesses and, and their ability to provide high quality product for the future. Amazing, yeah, and I think I think too, as you know, new people stepping into industries and as these conversations become more widespread, I, I think it will probably take time. But I do think the the energy that that those corp- bigger corporations put out, like it can't just be about profits anymore because people see right through that. And I think companies will realize that and follow suit. And the ones who are paving the way with doing this good stuff are going to continue rising to the top. So that's really exciting that you, you're being a part of this movement. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely exciting. And you're, you're very right is that a lot of these companies, you know, the biggest ones, energy companies or food companies are still very much profit driven, but they're also there. If you look I don't know if I can explain this with a graph. I've never done it with a graph. But uh, if you look at their revenue of their product lines over time, right, five, ten years, they haven't grown. Nothing that Kellogg's or General Mills makes anymore, like, say, you know, the simplest of cereals or craft, you know, craft dinner. None of that makes any money. It it just – they have to price it so low and they have to give so much away on promo that it's just – uh, basically, you know, it's a $10 billion or $20 billion, um, but flat revenue, flat growth, because it's totally mature and nobody wants it anymore. So they buy up companies like Annie's for the craft dinner example. 
and they buy up, uh, I mean, Kellogg's bought the RX bar, which is a, a you know, hmm. bar we look to for uh, a lot of, a lot of inspiration and direction in terms of how to do something right. But they look at those because innovation is what's driving the food market. It has been for some time. Um, and they, you know, it's easier for them and more effective for them and more exciting for the entrepreneur to sell their company and stay part of it. And then they get that new revenue source because it's a new niche market, right? They've unlocked niche markets, these innovative small food companies. Um, and going back to the, the impossible burger beyond meats, like that's exactly what they did. Everyone said, ah, oh, there's you know, these crappy veggie burgers. Um, they've been, you know, there's been veggie burgers that are wheat or soy or, or nut based. They've been around for, I don't know, 30 years or more. And they're, you know, every once in a while you find a good one, but I, I like a lot of veggie burgers, <clears throat> but I know if I order one at a restaurant, I'm rolling the dice because you can get a really crappy one. Uh, but they, now what these guys said with the impossible burgers, they want to make the choice, um, for people. I can get an impossible burger and no, I'm going to like it because it tastes really good. Is it tastes exactly like beef? No, but it's really good. And I think that's a way of looking at, you know, the change of food, especially going more plant-based that, that a lot of these innovative companies are doing that the big companies can't really do because it, you know, the, the corporate in you know bureaucratic system internally i don't think really allows for that again i don't really know because i'm not part of any of these companies but that's my assumption from just interacting with them at arm's length Mm -hmm. yeah that totally makes sense so why don't we circle back for a second here and i would love for you to share with our listeners kind of what got you into doing the work that you're doing today and specifically like how did crickets get into the picture (laughs) yeah how did crickets get in the picture great Great question. Uh, I've told it so many times. I'm not even sure what I'm telling anymore, but I'll definitely go through it. Um, so I, I've always, if we go way back, like I've always been very interested in, in food. Um, you know, my mom from a very young age, I think like five, made me and my sister cook a meal ourselves once a week. Um and not that she was like, here, you know, here's your knives and hot stove, best of luck <laughs> at 5.30, you know, be ready. You know, she obviously, she brought down cookbooks and like, which, what, you know, what recipe do you want to cook? And uh, we'd pick one and she'd take us to the grocery store if we needed to get anything and then help us do that process. And as we got older and more you know, responsible, we were allowed to do more complex things like chopping with a sharp knife. We were definitely were five-year-olds chopping with knives. Uh, but because of that, I've always been... You know, food's always been a big part of our family, um, very interested in it. But as I got older um, and did my undergrad, with, undergrad, excuse me, which was uh, at UBC in sustainability, but also it was the program at that time was under human geography. Um, it's its own program standout now in sustainability and uh, environmental sciences. But with the human geography aspect, a lot of the classes we took were on things like human population migrations, why people move around. You know, the, if you look at the study of geography or, you know, the study of, of space is what really geography is. If you add the human element into it, you look at why humans do things. So my kind of love of food and then getting educated in why humans do things um, was, was where I intersected on learning more about in international and global food systems. Uh, and then I had my first experience with eating insects in 2000 and 
I always forget this. I think it's 2007. Me and my, uh, we took a, me and my buddy deferred a year before going um, to UBC. So it was actually before UBC. Uh, but we had our first experience uh, going through Cambodia, seeing people eating insects um, and all this, you know, crazy stuff that we had never even heard of, let alone eaten. Uh, and I remember sitting at, you know, I came here, it was this little hut thing that you'd find in uh, some, some Cambodian beach town. Um, and we said, you know, people probably don't eat this stuff because it tastes crappy. You know, like they, they I understand that it's a, you know, a, a subsistence level food, but the subsistence level foods of North Americans, you know, are like things like chicken pot pie and, you know, slow roasted, like crappy cuts of meat or stews and you know, chili. And that's like, that was subsistence food. And the reason they, they just made it taste good because they didn't have anything else. So, we ate, we said, screw it, let's eat some crickets. Like, let's try it out. And uh, we actually ended up eating a bunch of different insects and some were good and some were bad, but the crickets were outstandingly delicious. And I think that's a point that a lot of people miss when we, we talk about introducing edible insects into North America is that crickets taste good. Um, and it's, you know, as a ground powder in our product, uh, they become more of an ingredient but on their own, you know, mixed with, you know, fried and mixed with some chilies like we had in Cambodia and some salt, they're, they're really tasty. Uh, so we were surprised and we ended up eating crickets a lot throughout Cambodia and grabbing like bags of, uh, bags of meat and like popcorn on the long bus trips they had there. <laughs> um, so, you know, went to UBC, uh, got my degree in sustainability, uh, environmental um, studies. And then moved uh, into the mining industry simply because that's where there was employment at the time. I graduated in 2011, so um, you know it wasn't that long after the big recession, so you know employment wasn't all that easy to find. Uh, but in the mining industry, got really involved uh, on the started in the the, the construction side. So um, my, one of my past careers was as a teenager, and then in Drew University, I was a framer, so building houses. Uh, and started building uh, camps and platforms and all these things for the mining industry, but started implementing, you know, some recycling programs and basic uh, basic systems that evolved that didn't exist in the company I worked for. Um, and so we got, you know, I got a little bit of attention there. I got promoted a few times to us running um, pretty sizable camps between 50 and 100 people and doing full on like recycling and garbage mitigation programs, looking at, how to reduce um, how to reduce uh, fuel consumption by like simple things like scheduling our trucks to be to just drive less, and it sounds uh, very very simple, and it was basically. But when you you know come from the mining industry, where a lot of people just there is no consideration for that, it was something that we we were uh, excited to do, and then I actually got moved into um, the the kind of finance and business business side of the mining industry from there. Uh, but I didn't have the hard skills that I had wanted to, to be successful. So I actually went and got uh, a business degree. I did an MBA um, to learn those business skills, the hard skills. Um, I've always been really bad at math. Uh, math is one of those ones where I have to, you know, put in twice the effort to get what, you know, it's kind of a two to one ratio, twice the effort to, to the one basic solution. So learning a lot of, uh, you know, the, the hard skills around business math was really important to me. But during that, I, I actually ended up focusing specifically on sustainability 
in that program and sustainability implementation in as business. And then did a, uh, a specialization in entrepreneurship, which is kind of hilarious. And I've always laughed at myself, like do you, going to business school to learn entrepreneurship is the most oxymoronical, ridiculous thing. <laughs> um, and I'll be honest, like the exposure of that specialization to lots of different businesses was very valuable, but going, you know, doing entrepreneurship as a school thing was, it's just, I don't want to call it a waste of time because it wasn't, but it was very not realistic to what being an entrepreneur is at all. Uh, you know, everything there is like case studies and, and regimented and there's always a solution that you just have to find. And being an entrepreneur is never a solution. You just got to have to make it up and, and believe in it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, being sustainable and sustainable in business uh, got very involved in energy. So I was more actually involved in the energy side. So I worked for a couple um, for just did projects. I just didn't really work for them, but did projects for a few uh, solar panel companies um, and working on their business plan and business model and trying to figure out how to make them more successful. Uh, but got, you know, just reading about sustainability and, and what was going on in the world, got very interested in the energy side, but also agriculture and realized that uh, from a UN report in 2013, there was going to be a big push by the UN uh, for looking at insects as um, a, a food source for humans because they're so sustainable. So taking all that back story um, you know, things I said about being interested in food and food cultures and having that experience with many different food cultures as they traveled kind of all culminated to the 2013-2014 report uh, and then really started building the idea of, man, maybe the insects thing is, is a potential. Maybe there is potential for that in the long run. Um, and, you know, from, from there started building the idea of how would insects work as a human food in North America? You know, what scale do we have to get to, to make it uh, successful? Uh, what would, what do people want? And, you know, that's when in late, I guess, 2015 started Coast Protein and then 2000, about a year and a half ago. So uh, just late 2017, I actually went full-time into Coast from, I worked two full-time jobs for really two, two years. Um, wow. Before I went full-time uh, into coast and quit my job in mining. Whew, you had quite the journey that led you to where you are today, hey? Yeah, sorry. I brain dumped on you a little, didn't I? No, it's, it's awesome. It's always really cool to see how we have so many different experiences through our lives and these things that are kind of like seemingly unrelated all kind of like come full circle at the end and lead us to what we're put here to do. Yeah, absolutely. Like my... My, uh, I've always been very grateful for my parents when I was at university. I, I, um, a lot of the friends I was with were going into like commerce degrees and engineering degrees and like HKIN, especially a lot of friends in HKIN. Uh, and they were, you know, that's job training very specifically. Like you're taking these courses where I was like, I don't need, like, I don't really know what I want, but I was very interested in human geography. I was very interested in the environment, um, and sustainability. Like we did a lot of, I, I do a lot of outdoors things to this day. I spend most of my time outdoors and um, kind of intersecting those interests. My parents were always very supportive. They're like, hey, listen, you know, university doesn't have to be job training. It can just be life training. Like you can go learn um, and you're going to start lower out of the gate in terms of like, uh, you know, your, your annual salary and experience, but doesn't mean 
you have to pick something specific and do that at university um, because that's not really what the arts part of university is for, right? Like, um, so that that's always been me being very grateful because it gave me the ability to actually like follow what I was interested in. Uh, and I always knew I could go home and get a hot meal so I didn't have to worry too much about too much about uh, paying the bills <laughs> right out of the gate. A little later. Yeah. Cool. And so if, if we have someone who's listening who has never even considered the idea of incorporating crickets into their diet, why don't you let them know, like, beyond tasting good and being a beneficial ingredient into your bars and powders, like, why would we want to eat crickets? What are the health benefits of your bars, of your powders? Like, how are they making our lives easier? What impact? are we having on the planet? Give us all the goods on that. Yeah. So uh, I would start at, you know, what, what we use them for and the way we pitch crickets is that we want to remove, we want to use things like edible insects and other types of alternative sustainable proteins um, to remove that like bottom 10 to 15% of crappy protein on the market. Um, So that's where we kind of base, that's where we start as a baseline. So things like, you know, McDonald's hamburgers, um, really crappy whey protein that's, you know, mass industrially produced and just full of chemicals. Um, that's where we want you guys to, to be thinking about, oh, we could put crickets, you know, we could put a scoop of 100% cricket protein powder in a chili or a curry um, and take out the, you know, the cheap ground beef that we bought. And next time we want ground beef, we can really, you know, buy really high quality because we didn't use it in this chili. Um it's, it's more of a, I think crickets, you know, jumping back a little bit, something that's very popular in the plant-based world right now is saying you're protein agnostic. As long as it's not conventional meats, we're protein agnostic. So if you're going to be um, using crickets or pumpkin seed or soybeans, you know, whatever, that makes us happy no matter what. Of course, we want you to use uh, the cricket products uh, more just because it's what we're doing. Uh, but I think it all fits into the same bucket. So for the crickets themselves, if you want to add them to your food, you know, they're 60, 65 to 70% protein by weight. So they're their highest um, that we found natural protein source without isolating or concentrating it. Hmm. They're very high in B12. So are some of our protein powders uh, have over 100% of your daily um, of B12 and 20 grams of protein. Oh, wow. Um, they're, you know, all of our bars are around 50% of your daily magnesium, uh, same with iron. So they're very high B12 iron magnesium. Uh, crickets also have a full amino acid profile. And for the, you know, the real heavy nutrition people, because it's an animal protein, uh, the iron is ferric iron, which is the most bioavailable, um, which is typically comes from uh, animal uh, sources. I know there is some plants that have ferric, but I can't remember them off the top of my head. Uh, and then when we talk about, like, it's also a very sustainable choice. Um, crickets use very little water, so they use about a thousand times less water um, comparing a, a comparing a, a, a comparable weight or a, you know, a one-to-one ratio weight, so one kilogram of beef versus one kilogram of cricket protein. It's about a thousand times less water. It's about 2,000 times less feed. It's about 20 wow. times less land. Um and, you know, that, that's where I think it becomes very exciting is the land component. Um, like I mentioned, with our population rising pretty rapidly, and this is not enough land. 
we have we're going to be 10 billion people in 2050 that's not only 10 billion more or that's only three billion more people than where we're at right now or two and a half it's uh, a lot more land for food so if we can create systems of food that that create the same amount of protein that's just as high or better quality um with a lot less land we're on the right track i think yeah i agree there's so many so many different things that come into play here like from the nutrient density of them again the fact that they taste good i had a cranberry bar the other day and it was delicious awesome Um, and yeah just like thinking about the long-term health of our planets like rather than this oh, this tastes good and it's really easy to mass produce it right now. So let's just forget about the future. Um, I love that you are addressing so many different facets with your products. Yeah, it's something, and we even have gone a step further. Um, with a, We don't use dates, we don't use cashews, and we don't use almonds in any of our products and we'll continue along that. Um, and the reason, the reason for that is around water. Um, all three of those products just use far too much water and they come from water scarce areas to be used as much as we do. You know, I love almonds and cashews as much as the next person, um, but we, we eat them as treats. And until we figure out how to grow them with less water or, you know, it's something that we have to limit. And it's sad to say, but like, yeah, we, in the future, you know, 30 years from now, the almonds probably won't exist. Um, you know, it's the same like people have been talking about bananas are almost out. Uh, you know, date palms are, are going out because a lot of the places they're growing in right now are turning into deserts. And mm-hmm. it's important, I think, if, if we take, you know, sustainability um, and long-term, you know, kind of longevity as serious as we need to, it's, it's really making those micro level changes. And I know a lot of people um, say micro level food changes don't mean anything. It's macro level, but micro dictates what macro does. Like, People, yes. you know, Kellogg's does not make Honey Nut Cheerios because they like to. They make them because people buy them. Um, and that's so, you know, we don't, like, I don't eat tuna. I haven't eaten tuna for about, about four years now um, because it's, you know, almost extinct. And um, I guess for me, it's if, if we all stopped eating tuna, it wouldn't be extinct. And yeah, it sucks because tuna is delicious and almonds are delicious. But um, these are the choices that I personally think that we're going to be faced and with much worse choices as well. Um, so it's probably better to start preparing ourselves now. Um, and that's all, that's my, that's my, as deep as I'm going on my doom and gloom rant, I'm not going to go any deeper. <laughs> <laughs> all good. No, and I appreciate your, your thoughts on that too. I think it's really important to understand that all of those little decisions that we make they, they do have an impact by choosing not to eat meat for dinner one night. You might inspire one of your friends to go meatless one night who might then inspire one of their friends. And it's just like a chain reaction where people just start to become, a, even if it's just a little bit more aware of the choices that they make, it can have a really big impact if more of us do have that awareness. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, plant-based, if you look at a milk section, right? Um, how much of milk sections or dairy sections, I should say, is milk, actual dairy or non-dairy milk? And of course, there's a, a you know, whether that, I don't think it, that decision is much as sustainability as it was um, intolerance to lactose for people. Mm-hmm. But you can see like that's, for me, the most visual and striking um, display of people making a decision that's tr- drastically changed in industry um, where people are like, you know, 
that, as I mentioned, Danon and Chobani, two of the biggest yogurt companies in or dairy companies in the world, are actively buying and investing in non-dairy-based yogurts and milks because that well, this is where the industry is going. Is that mm-hmm. people not drinking or eating as much dairy? Um, so those are, but those are micro, those were micro-level changes. People stop purchasing dairy and there's too much. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. I want to uh, shift gears a little bit. So you said that you went to school for entrepreneurship and then found that what you learned didn't necessarily translate into what entrepreneurship was actually like. And I'm wondering if you can maybe share what some of your biggest lessons were in this journey. Um, I know it's been a relatively short journey so far, but I'm sure it feels like you've learned a lot. And if maybe there have been some big mistakes or learning opportunities that you can share with our listeners as well. Yeah, for sure. So I, I did fail to mention that I was uh, the founding CEO of a tech startup um, oh. in the mining space. Wow. Uh, for a couple of years. So we, we did a, it was a sustainable, it was a, I'm not going to go into it, but essentially it was a, um, a CO2 sequestration technology for use on mine sites. So um, capturing CO2 that came out of mine operations uh, to reduce emissions uh, was, was the goal. And we developed, uh, we actually were in the Carbon X Prize, which was really cool. We got to travel over the U.S. Um, pitching in front of some pretty major envi- our energy companies. Uh, and what we, we scaled, we raised uh, about $2 million for that company. And then we scaled to um, a uh, production-level facility, but found out we could not do it on an economic scale, unfortunately. So we had to close. Well, we actually pivoted and uh, sold most of it off. So... For me, like as an entrepreneur, I think I'm in year six now. Okay. Uh, six or seven. So it's still relatively new. I mean, there's yeah. serial entrepreneurs who've been doing it for 40 years, right? Uh, but for my, my lessons, I mean, something that I, I wish for Coast I had done was pick, pick a day that I was going to quit um, my full-time gig um, and pick that day and, like, you know, set metrics like KPIs to it, like, these are just numbers, you know, but say $10,000 a month in revenue, I'm going to quit. Or, uh, you know, we're in 500 or 200 stores, I'm going to quit. Or we're, uh, you know, I'm shipping products out more than 50 packages a day, five times a week. Some KPI that has some grounding in reality. And if I and then pick that day when that happens, quit that day. Um, because I drag my feet a little bit. Uh, moving from one role to the other and it just was like a kind of a drawn out process. So getting into a, a role I mean, for people who are, who are potentially listening and have like a side job or a side hustle or, or have an idea, like at some point you're going to need to commit um, and, you know, no one else will commit. So whether you're raising money, whether you're trying to find employees, whether you're trying to find partners or customers, None of them will commit until you're committed um, because, you know, why would they? Why would you commit to someone who's not fully committed? And I think that's something that uh, now I know for, our, you know, my next business, if there is one down the road, is that that commitment point will be much more defined. And then expanding out from there, we knew we knew with Coast Protein right from the get-go that you know, trying to sell edible insects would be very difficult. So we had to be very pragmatic about it. Um, so we had to have the ability to, to, to pivot into new product lines if the market dictated that. Um, so that's why we named ourselves Coast Protein and not, you know, like a cricket 
name like a lot of our uh, competitors and contemporaries are named. Uh, but going further from that, what we didn't do, and I wish we had done, is understand um, how you know the steps that a, a CPG food company go through to grow. Uh, so you know, you're hand making bars, you're hand packing, and then you then you're maybe you get a little sealer, so you know you you have a little machine to seal the product, right? And you have these little steps that you do to make the process more efficient, so you're not spending so much time making them or in labor. But then understanding there's realities to these markets. So in CPG, right, like it's it's finding a contract manufacturer is a very difficult and long process. It takes like six months um, to finally get your product on shelf and working with those type of manufacturers. So going to companies, you know, like Coast Protein, I'd be happy to help anyone, but other companies that you admire that are maybe local and you can get it, you buy their company, boss, a, the CEO or whatever, someone in it cup of coffee or a beer or something and say, you know, what do I need to know and how much is it going to cost me? Because it sounds like a lot of, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars sound like a lot of money. Um, but when you scale up a food company, you spend that in a month. And, uh, and then when you scale up again, you spend that in a week <laughs> and it becomes very shocking. Like, oh my God. Like we're spending, you know, a couple hundred grand every quarter just on product development to make sure our products stay on shelf longer. Um, or, you know, oh shoot, this product, when you scale it up, uh, the example I'll give is we had a dark chocolate raisin bar. And when we went to the scale up level of going from about a thousand bars a day, making it to 15,000 bars a day, making them, um, the bar wouldn't work. It, 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 as we went to that faster process, they get more macerated. So the raisins would get like really chopped up. They oxidized really quickly and they fermented. And all of a sudden we got 15,000 bars on a pallet that were puffed up like little pillows because all the raisins had fermented and oh, wow. the bars smelled like wine. Um, so we had to, unfortunately, um, they were inedible to throw out 15,000 bars. Um, luckily, you know, there's a the government of Canada has some good programs in for, it's called, there's one thing called shred you can use, um, but they can, you can write that off as a, as a tax thing. So um, you can get that back just because it's research and development essentially. Oh, cool. That's good too. Uh, that it doesn't like fully go to waste either. Yeah. Like that, you know, but we, we tried to give away as many as possible, but they like, these were fermented bars. They were inedible. It was, <laughs> it was, you know, I, I hate, we, we hate wasting food and part of our operation is to waste as little as possible, but when food's bad, it's bad. You can't eat it. Yeah. Um, so that, that's something that I, I would, for like any business, but for food, especially, um, that's what I know now is understand, you know, if you want to be a million dollar company or a $10 million company or a $20 million company in an X amount of years, you need to go find people who are that size and figure out how much money you're going to need. Because food, unfortunately, in these days, is not something you can bootstrap. Um, at a certain point, you you have to put down a lot of cash um, to get to that next level, um, which usually means bringing on other debt or uh, investment or something like that. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you brought up in just going out and asking people, like, what do I need to know? How much money is this going to cost me? I think that's something that is so often overlooked. And I talk to a lot of people who are like, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. And I think most would be surprised at how many people are out there who are willing to share their knowledge, share their experience, share what they've learned along the way. 
Oh, absolutely. Like I, I'm part of uh, a few industry organizations. Um, some of these industry organizations have, you know, the heads of uh, companies like Vega that sold for 500 million US, right? These are massive global companies and they're busy, busy people. But if you can corner them uh, at an event, introduce yourself and schedule, maybe it'll take you a month to schedule um, you know, a month ahead of the schedule for an hour, half an hour, but you'll get time. Like they'll, they'll find time to help people um, in in growing businesses because they remember what it was like. And I'm the same way. Like I'm no, by no means anywhere near, near that size, but um, you know, we, we do mentorship for small companies all the time or just a 15 minute phone call just to answer a question that we might be able to help. So there's lots of lots of people who uh, uh, who want to help you. That's awesome. Now, on the topic of helping others, I'm curious about how you help yourself while growing this business. Like, I imagine you have a ton on your plate. And I'm curious about how you manage to take care of yourself, how you stay active, how you focus on nutrition, or if those things are just not on your radar right now. Like, what's your self-care practice look like? Oh, man, I'm so bad at it. (laughs) Yeah, self-care is like my 2019 business goal (laughs) i'm terrible at it uh for me like skiing is like i I, i've tried meditation many times when i I lived in japan for uh, almost two years and when the first year i was there i basically meditated for an hour every day at a little monastery zen monastery across the road from my apartment um and then after about a year i realized i hated meditation Um, i hated sitting still for an hour and like so I had to refocus on how to get that kind of mindful aspect uh, without having to sit still in a room because I hated it. Uh, so like skiing is a huge thing for me. Um, it feels very, it's very singular in terms of the, the objective. So anything that's singular in terms of the objective for me is very healthy for my brain. Um, I walk my dog in the forest a lot. That's really good. Uh, I, you know, anything around fitness eating healthy i've been it's a struggle (laughs) uh it's a huge struggle you know we sit in our office for like 12 hours to 14 hours a day sometimes uh work till very late often um and and honestly like it's one of those things i know there's people who just think no you just got to eat better and and exercise more, but, uh, you know, something we're working on, definitely I'm working on. Um, I find listening to my body. Like the one kind of plus is that if you work as much as, as most entrepreneurs do that taking a day off every once in a while, um, is, is something that it's very hard to do. I find because you're like, Oh man, I have so much to do. I really just work. But that day off will usually bring a lot of benefit. I mean, don't if you're you know if you have a big meeting, don't take that day off. But if it's <laughs> Sunday and you know some of these things can wait till till tomorrow. The the one thing that I really do do well though is prioritizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can get so lost in the hundred emails you get a day. It's very easy to, I don't know how to say this, but it's very easy to work without doing anything. So you can yeah. work, you work 10 hours a day, but you, at the end of the day, why is my business better, right? Um, I'm pretty good at that. I'm pretty good at making sure that what we're doing is is focused on top of the pile, but um, 
there's always there's always stuff comes up too. Yeah. Well, now that you've said this on a podcast that your intention is to kind of step it up on the fitness and nutrition front, like that's the ultimate accountability. You've just said that out to the world now. I know. So. I, know. <laughs> I was actually at uh, Mad Lab in Vancouver yesterday uh, talking to, uh, I, I bolted a disc last year. Um, my, what is it? L5 S1 when I was skiing, cool. skiing rather intensely and might've made a, might've made a little mistake on the ski hill and then actually bulged it, like actually pinched it when I was walking my dog. Because oh was, no. Um, so it's always those little things. Hey. Yeah. That's what the, the physio and doctor said. It was like, you probably did it at 99% on when you, when you bailed skiing, but when you just made that one funny step and I had to like hobble home from Burnaby mountain for 25 mm-hmm. minutes. Um, but anyways, I was at Mad Lab talking to a, a mobility guy yesterday so i'm getting back into it after a year of basically nothing you can carry or lift anything so wow and you know i think there's that this is really like a testament to your vision and when we have when we run businesses and we're building something from the ground up and we're building this big thing that we have a vision for we have different seasons of our lives right and you know if right now self-care is taking that mindful time with your dog when you're going for a walk or just making sure that you're focusing on the things that need to be done and letting the other hundred emails kind of fall to the wayside. Like that's cool. There will be more time in your life for more workouts and for cooking lots of plant-based meals or like outsourcing that and having someone else cook them for you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, I love cooking so much. It's one of those, it's like skiing, dog walking, cooking, um, or, or I'd say that, you know, top three hiking, top four, uh, things for me to like kind of relax, but I don't cook as much, don't cook as much as we used to. It's, yeah. I eat a lot of lunches at a Starbucks. I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's all good. All good. You've got crickets to keep you going too. Yeah. Do you eat a lot of crickets? I'll be honest. You eat a lot of crickets every day. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so you've had some really great nuggets and really great tips for our listeners, but do you have beyond all of the amazing stuff you've already said, do you have like one golden piece of advice for any entrepreneurs who may be listening, who are just starting out or something that you wish you had known? Wish I had known. I mean, my, what I always say to people is that for the most part, and obviously this is a large generalization of everyone who's listening um, if you're in British Columbia and you live in Vancouver, no matter what your role is, you're pre- we're pretty much the 1% of the planet in terms of luckiness to where we live and the country we live in and how we're treated as people. So I always tell people, uh, you know, embrace that. Um, I find people can get really stuck in uh, what I call the race to the bottom. Like, oh, you know, my job sucks this much and I work this much and I have this less sleep. And they really get stuck in that, like, my life's harder than yours. But if you live in Vancouver and you have a job and things are relatively good and you can afford to go for a beer, you're doing all right. So make sure to give back to other people. We, we you know, we're a 1% for the planet company. And when we become a little bit larger, we're going to uh, go through the B Corp process. Uh, I personally do a lot of mentoring with, like, high school students who want to become entrepreneurs, um, with just people who are entrepreneurs and need a little bit of help. Um, that's all I, I just do it in my own interest. Um, so I did sit on the board of environmental group for my home city, but just not right now. 
Um, and we encourage all the people involved with Coast to volunteer um, and be involved in the community in some shape or another because it's the people who, in my mind, have it the best. And again, I think people who live in Vancouver have it the best. Um, obviously, there's a lot of issues with our city, but you know it's still pretty good. So I think the people who have it the best need to be uh, focused on giving back because if they don't, no one else will. Boom. I think that's a mic drop moment there. <laughs> no, but you hit the nail on the head. Like we, we are so fortunate to live here. And I think it's something that so many of us take for granted when we complain about parking and housing prices and things like that. And avocados, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Like if you're complaining about the price of avocados, you, know, <laughs> you, got, you got nothing to complain about. <laughs> right. Although um, the price of beer is too damn high. They stupid. I love micro brews, my craft brews, but man, it's getting up there in price. Nine dollars for a pint. Come on. Oh wow. Yeah, it's a world that I'm not familiar with, but um, that does seem steep. It is. Well, this was an awesome chat. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you today. And if our listeners want to connect with you or find out more about Coast, like where can we find you on the socials? Uh, at Coast Protein uh, is Instagram. Where Instagram we're very active on, so that's the best place to find us. Facebook we're pretty active. Twitter we're not. Uh, you know, where if you want to try any of the products, visit us at CoastProtein.com. Um, or one of over 500 stores, I think we're in now. Um, so if you're in the lower mainland, Nestor's Donald, Savon, um, man, urban fairs, like a million coffee shops and small natural food stores, check us out, try us out and let us know what you think. Awesome. Yeah. And I was really stoked to see you guys at Cypress when uh, I went out there a few weeks ago. Yeah. You know what's funny? Cypress is like our, our it's a seasonal customer, obviously, but they they sell so much. So wow, so that's what maybe a nugget I missed is if you're starting to sell a product, try to find those people who are like niche, amazing sellers and work with them very closely because they've been a fantastic uh, partner for us. Cool. Look at that. Another tip to round it off. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Dylan. I, I got a lot out of our conversation and I'm sure our listeners did too. Cool. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. And to our listeners, as always, thank you so much for your time, your energy, and for allowing us to hang out in between your ears. I'll be back with you next week with another episode of the Daily Sweat Podcast. Have a great day. Hey, if you enjoyed today's episode, please do me a huge favor, head over to iTunes and leave us a review letting us know what you loved. Thank you.